my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Today's episode is brought to you by Gordon Law Group. If you've tried to do Bitcoin taxes yourself, you know how complicated it is. You can spend hours and hours going through your transactions and researching tax forms and you're still not sure if it's right or if the IRS will come after you. Or maybe you're so intimidated by Bitcoin taxes that you don't even know where to start. Gordon Law Group can help. Ditch the spreadsheets and feel confident with a bulletproof Bitcoin tax return. They can help with IRS payment plans and they also provide a full range of legal and accounting services for Bitcoin and digital asset startups. Get your taxes done right the first time with the original Bitcoin and digital asset tax pros. Go to gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. As a bonus, they'll send you the ultimate Bitcoin tax guide for free. That's gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. Hey, Tur, Chris, CK. How's it going, guys? Looking forward to this. How's it going, Spencer? How's it going, CK? How's it going, Tor? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. It's going great. Happy to be here. Tour, thanks for being so punctual. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys as well. Good to be here. Of course, yeah. We're really looking forward to diving into your work. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite pieces that you've done is this Bitcoin reformation piece, which we're definitely going to get into. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's, it's kind of mind blowing to see kind of the historical parallels that are present in the reformation that happened in the 16th century and, you know, what we're going through today and these, you know, massive kind of geopolitical and, and cultural shifts. So yeah, I thought you did an amazing job laying that all out. So I, I can't wait to, to unpack that a bit more. And I'm also going to real quickly just put some tweets up in the nest before we get going. Sounds great. Spencer, I can actually put so, I can put the the tweets up in the nest if you want while uh, you and CK take over from here. Cool, sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Sounds sounds great.
Yeah, I was going to jump in and just do some housekeeping and introduce the show. Obviously, this is Cosmic Bitcoin. We've been doing this every single Wednesday for a while now. We join with the biggest thinkers in the Bitcoin space at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And we try to have the more futuristic, the more bigger picture, maybe even the more esoteric conversations around Bitcoin. This week, obviously, Tour de Meester is here. He's written a lot of awesome stuff. He's done a lot of amazing early foundational research about Bitcoin, and he's read a whole lot of books. So really excited to jump into this conversation. This conversation is always is brought to you by the Bitcoin Conference officially 50 days away from the event. Really excited to see everyone there. I see Parker there in the audience. I know he's going to be at the conference. Thanks for tuning in, Parker. I know that you're a tour fan, and we are going to be engaging in some really intellectual and cosmic conversations in Miami as well. So grab a ticket, use promo code COSMIC to save some stats on that ticket. Pay with Bitcoin to get $100 in Bitcoin Magazine store credit. So jump over and see you in Miami. I know that hotel prices are going down as well. So cheers to that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited for the Bitcoin conference, but I'm more excited right now for this conversation. So Spencer, I'll hand it off to you if you want to do a quick bio on Tour. Yeah, sure thing. So Tour is an early Bitcoin investor, and he's really well known for his deep dive reports and market research. Tour is a founding partner of Adamant Capital, and he's an advisor to Blockstream. And as well, he's on the board of the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. And Tour is also a co-founder of the Rothbard Institute. He's had some really, really interesting back and forth lately with George Selgin, and as well as with the guys from the Mises Institute. With everything going on, the banking crisis right now, kind of the debate of the day is kind of, you know, what is what are the ethics behind fractional reserve banking and how does Bitcoin fit into the, the equation as we see it today? And yeah, so really looking forward to, to picking Tour's brain on those matters. But I think to start, one of the, the things that CK and I are both looking forward to a lot is unpacking Tour's piece, the Bitcoin Reformation. It kind of gives a really nice parallel between the events that took place in the Reformation, which was kind of the you know split between the Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century. And it all began with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses, these famous 95 theses kind of decrying the practice of indulgences. He nailed those to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany. And so I know Tour can give us you know, a bit more color on. But yeah, I definitely found that the aspect, of course, of kind of money being front and center in this cultural shift. And then as well, kind of the ramifications of it and how these events played out. Tour goes into detail on the Dutch and their seafaring ways, you know, the the difficulty of imposing, you know, force on them due to, you know, their ability to navigate waterways and, and be very shifty. And there's some really interesting parallels between that kind of ability to defend oneself and kind of this cryptographic revolution that we're currently witnessing. So Tor, yeah, man, looking forward to diving in here. And I think I just to give people a bit of context, I, I'd be really curious to hear, you know, where your interest in history came from. I'll just offer people a quote from your, your piece, but you, you quoted Niccolo Machiavelli and he wrote, whoever wishes to foresee the future must consult the past, for human events ever resemble those of preceding times. This arises from the fact that they are produced by men who have ever been and ever will be animated by the same passions, and thus they essentially have the same result. So, you know, I think that's obviously quite prescient. But with that in mind, like, you know, where did your interest in history come from? You've obviously been very influenced by that in your writing. Yeah, I mean, it, it evolved pretty slowly for me. I, I, I grew up in like in a way 
I was kind of force fed history because I grew up in Bruges and like, you know, in Belgium. So everyone, you know, there's like millions of tourists every year who want to know all about, you know, this, this place. And it was where, you know, the, the stock market first emerged in Europe and all that stuff. And so <laughs> I feel bad to say that I was like pretty bored in, in history classes in, in, in high school. I think in part because oftentimes the focus was really on like, the courts, I mean, like the, the you know, the, the royalty and the kings and the queens and all the kind of political stuff. And, and it's only later that, you know, I, I, I started getting really interested in economics and then the history of finance that I started to kind of get excited about how the way a market works and how market forces change and how maybe like technology changes and how all those things influence history. And so... I, I do, you know, like, I don't think George R. Martin is wrong to, to kind of, you know, display this grand story of history as like being influenced by like really individuals and who, who might have a lot of political power. But to me, it gets it gets a lot more fun once you throw in like technology, economics, geography, weather, like all these different forces that are at play together. So, yeah, it's been probably... Only kind of my mid-twenties is when I really started enjoying reading history books. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head-on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine. I can definitely listen to history, but I can't. I can't read it. It just puts me asleep immediately. Any any tricks to kind of like gritting down and like reading a lot of content? Because I know that you know, obviously, you you've read an enormous amount of historical content in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, I mean, it's I've really had periods in my life. There's periods where I really struggle with like taking a book and sitting down and and reading it and and so i i'm really happy that there's different types of ways to consume information like in my earlier 20s i would do a lot of the what are they called again these like audio kind of like the the something something courses it was like this like kind of like a you know you could i would like pirate the 
the courses, basically like university style courses given by professors on certain historical subjects. But now on YouTube and especially also like all the podcast platforms, like there's like really, really pretty brilliant amateur historians that put together these amazing podcasts. And I think that's just as valuable. I mean, as long as you kind of make sure that this is a person that cites their sources and that like, you know, you feel like it's not just, they're not just making it up as they go along. I think that's really great for like giving you some context. Cause like, yeah, like just a, a dry overview of a certain period, like that, that's pretty boring. But like, for example, lately I was, I went through a bunch of videos on the Napoleonic Wars and Napoleon, and it was just awesome to see it on YouTube because like they actually animate the battles and, and how, how everything looked like geographically. And it's so much more, you know, it comes to life so much more than if you were just to read a book and you have to try to imagine it somehow. Yeah, and on that note, I think it's really interesting to see just kind of this like decentralization of education that's taking place where everybody has access to, you know, the best lectures in the world. And then in turn, these people can all become educated and share their ideas. Like you said, these kind of amateur historians are able to to share their ideas far and wide and aren't limited to by geography. And that's, I don't I think there's certainly, as you write about in your piece, kind of parallels to the printing press that kind of spurred the, the reformation in, in the time period you write about. So yeah, and, and on that note, I think it would be really good to just kind of set the stage for, you know, what happened during this period. So I know that you kind of talk about there. Oh, can, can I just say one more word oh, about sure the, the research? Yeah. Yeah, just because it occurred to me that just compared 10 years ago compared to now you kind of almost had to be a college student to have access to the kind of materials i used to to write this report like you had to be had to have access to some you know big online library of or at least an index of all the papers that were written and then and then look them up and then copy the books and everything and i think the only way that i was able to do it is only I think it's been in the past five years, there are so many more ways to get access to academic papers and even complete books that have been scanned. They're just available online. So that is just, to me, it's just mind blowing that you can just with, like, especially if you have a really specific question is like, all right, so what happened in, you know, 1600 to 1605 in this city? And, you know, and then you just literally look up academic papers that were written about that period like that's the stuff you won't find in the youtube videos like the youtube stuff is is more like you know the the town square it's more like the democratic popular type knowledge that usually is shared if you want to dive deeper those are the, these academic resources are more available than ever yeah well said and i mean i'll just say for myself like going down the bitcoin rabbit hole has really inspired me to do a lot of of my own reading and trying to understand these like forces of monetary and geopolitical history that are, you know, wreaking their their consequences uh, right now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that really drove me towards the Bitcoin space, too, was, you know, the the drive to understand the world. I and mean, people like yourself are are doing a phenomenal job of, of educating on that as well. But yeah, I guess I, I kind of wanted to, to jump right in and kind of set the stage for what was occurring during the Reformation period. And one of the things that really sticks out and that you stress upon is kind of this monopolistic behavior that was present during the time, you know, the, the early 1500s, where the Catholic Church was kind of the, 
the sole service provider for kind of spiritual spirituality or, or religious experience. And so, yeah, I think it'd be helpful for people if you could just kind of set the stage as to, you know, what role the Catholic Church played in, in people's lives and kind of, you know, what drove this, this schism between the Protestants and the Catholics. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I, since I've written this paper, I've, I've, I've been reading more and, and I think it's tempting to like look at the Catholic church as like the boogeyman and like they were, you know, they're just getting like fat and greedy and, and, and therefore, you know, they had to go and like, why were they there in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, to me, the, the greater context, I, I think I'm discovering is that really when the, when the Roman empire fell, like the, the, you know, it's, it's a cliche nowadays to say like, Oh, but you shouldn't call it the dark ages, you know, the middle ages, you know, there was, so much going on and but like the truth is like you know the the most of the intellectual stuff moved east to the ottoman empire of course there were brilliant scholars thomas aquinas and other people but economically speaking like europe was in a tough place and i think that the simple way to put it is that the police force was gone like the roman empire had provided like on the one hand you could say like well they were oppressors and they were forcing people to pay tax and they were extracting all kinds of resources from the european continent but the romans were very very capable to defend against all kinds of tribes that came in full force when the roman empire fell and so you had the huns and all these the vandals like all these tribes would just raid europe over and over and over and that's why these middle-aged villages are so you can see it in architecture like they're like little fortresses whereas you know roman if you go to like pompeii or something it's just all nice villas and it's open and you you know you can like just wander around in in the streets and it's it's wide and magical it's like well yeah they had you know they they had they had great security whereas in the middle ages you were just on your own so so i think that i'm kind of making a long-winded story but but that the the whole idea of christianity was that kind of underdog like we're the underdog we're you know, we're used to being oppressed and prosecuted and, and we band together and like we stay strong and we have these core beliefs that we just stick to. And, you know, and we're, it's not about opulence for us. It's about doing the right thing. And, and so and that created this cohesion that allowed Europeans to, to kind of weather through the Middle Ages. And so and, and I think what happened by the time, you know, the early 1500s rolled around is that technology brought about so much prosperity that more and more people were able to secure themselves, like cities became more able to provide for their own security and had less need of that kind of like European wide, like fabric and and the the resources provided by the church, etc. So anyway, that's kind of like, I just feel like that's an important nuance. But so yeah, like this, this church did gather a lot of money because because the prosperity was going up. And so all that money was funneled to the Vatican eventually. And I mean, you can see it in St. Peter's Cathedral. I mean, that is just, think about how much, what it would cost today to build something like that. It's just in the billions and the billions and the billions. Like it's incredibly, anyway. So, so of course, people started getting frustrated about the amount of tax that was extracted from them. And they felt more and more, it was no longer justified by the services that the church was offering yeah and on that note like yeah i was hoping you could maybe draw some parallels to what we're seeing today i know you kind of note the imf and kind of this like the the current you know order of the monetary system as kind of being this monopolistic service provider and 
I guess I suppose you could make make the argument that the U.S. you know did provide a modicum of security post World War II and post World War War One as well. But like kind of there was like an impetus for that need for security. But I, I definitely hear a lot of parallels between you know this explosion in technological innovation we've seen, kind of this massive wealth creation and and you know increasing the the quality of life of individuals like. It, you know, what parallels do you see between kind of that, that decay of the need for this centralized institution that was the Catholic Church? Like, do you see parallels between that and kind of the current monetary order, or geopolitical order of today? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I, I guess I'm still working on like a kind of a coherent thesis about that, about like, especially like, you know, do we, you know, where did the protect the need for the protection come from? And and I mean, I I think in a way, I think in a way, this fiat system was basically like sourcer. People were acknowledging that in a world where trade becomes more and more globalized, it is difficult to have a gold standard because like, what are you going to do? Like ship bars of gold all around the world all the time? Like it's really expensive. It's risky. Like there's lots of shipwrecks throughout history of ships that just got sunk with lots of gold in them and so and of course like europe was just ravaged with wars throughout the 20th century there was a period in the 19th century where things were a lot more calm but but so by the beginning of the 20th century so much gold had been shipped to the united states that and and at the same time the u.s had gone on a fractional standard like the, the currency wasn't fully backed anymore by gold and so once the european countries started calling their gold back that's when slowly the u.s realized like oh we gotta we gotta do something here because in a way they're calling our bluff and so yeah i i still need to think about you know the the I don't know. I'm not a political scientist. So in terms of like, was it justified to have this like Pax Americana? Like, could it have gone another way? I'm really not sure. But I do think that technologically, we don't need a currency. And I do think in terms of like the genie in the bottle or the source apprentice, I think that the problems that come with a fiat world order have been gravely underestimated. Like people thinking like, oh, you know, don't nail us on a, a cross of gold, like this antiquated gold standard, it's a pain in the ass. Let's switch to, you know, a paper standard. I think I think people really were cavalier and, and, and went to a system that is actually inherently extremely unstable, leads to huge inflation, allows people to fund wars relentlessly without immediate consequences for the local population. So the bill is only paid later. Whereas if you want to fund a war like Napoleon, you have immediate taxation. So people immediately feel that something's going on and, and so can make themselves heard in a more direct way. So the, it's it's incredibly insidious, this whole fiat system. And so I think no matter what the exact political context is now, I think it's a positive thing that we're creating this this backup system to, to really kind of provide stability and provide a, a, a haven, a safe haven, right? I mean, if you want to draw a parallel, it would be like, well, you know, having Great Britain, a big island close by, even though there's wars on the continent, so you can you can flee to Great Britain and then, you know, the the new world was discovered. So people who were who felt unsafe on the European continent could actually cross the ocean and, and go there. So so that's how I see the you know the, the Bitcoin network as a, as a place to for people to find refuge, really. Yeah, and on that note, I, I think that 
of, of parallels between today and, and this period of the Reformation. I think there's just so many interesting aspects that, that really are similar. Let me see if I can find this here. Okay, yeah. So in, in your piece, you, you reference that the principal doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation was summarized with the words sola fide, which translates to faith alone. And this refers to the idea of Protestants having a direct relationship with God, one not mediated by a priest or the papacy. And I believe you draw this connection, but how do, how do you see that relating to don't trust verify? Like, it seems like there's, there is kind of a deep connection between needing to take things as gospel, gospel from a third party to mediate, you know, your relationship, I guess, in, in both senses with, with the world at large. But it seems like there is really a deep connection there with, between people trying to take kind of their their own ability to have that relationship into their own hands. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you look at the, the financial system today, especially the, the higher up, you know, the, 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 the popes and the bishops, so to speak, of the current system. So like, you know, Justine Lagarde, what's his name again from the BIS? Carstens. Uh, Carstens. Yeah. yeah, and there's, there's uh, Jerome Powell, like all these, you know, the, the so-called bigwigs, people who really are at the, at the steering wheel when they are being challenged or when they're being asked questions or when they're just trying to defend their system, they always go back to trust. Like, you've got to trust us. We know what we're doing. Don't worry. They're always managing people's trust. And so basically they're saying, like, we are, you know, we are at the top. You, the only way this works is if, if you just blindly trust us and we're going to figure it out. But of course, there's so much not. We're in an information society. Like the information is clearly available that what is happening is completely unsustainable. And and so the parallel is that yeah, the the Protestants. And by the way, Protestants back then they were not like what we think of Protestants today. Like they they weren't a specific denomination. Like I would say Luther was was an an extremist, an extremist among Protestants back then. Most Protestants were basically just you know, quietly protesting how the Catholic order was, and they just wanted to bypass it. They just wanted to do things their own way. There are many, many ways to do it. And of course, Luther was the one who wasn't afraid of his own life. So he would just, you know, insult the Pope and, and just always, he was a great one at making, he would be a great influencer today. Like, I bet he would have like 20 million followers. But so, yeah, but so, but still, you know, the same idea was, you know, if you kind of think about Bitcoin maximalists or something like that, like this idea, like, hey, or cypherpunks, really, that's a good analogy. Like, I, I can, I don't have to trust the bank. I don't have to trust any system. I can use cryptography to just verify open source software and verify myself or choose my own source of trust to verify the code. And so similarly, the Protestant movement was very decentralized. There were lots of people who were just talking about faith or how to live your life or what, what virtue was. And, and, and the only thing they had in common was just that they wanted to do things their own way. And that's why I drew these analogies between Sola Fide and, and some other Protestant slogans. And then the Bitcoin slogans of like, you know, not your keys, not your coins. This in numeris, like trust the code, the, the virtue is in the numbers. And then the one that you mentioned as well. CK, I have a follow-up here unless you want to hop in. No, I mean, I guess, Tor, if, if I were just to jump in, you know, when I try to, like, think out what a future Bitcoin world will look like, I try to, like, put my head in the same place of, like, what someone who is witnessing the Protestant Reformation might look think about what the world will look like 
when the church is no longer kind of like this central governing force in their world. And I try to like think of like, all right, well, how, how big can Bitcoin get if, if it's on a similar trajectory as, as kind of like separating church from state? And I'm, I'm kind of curious what, you know, if that framework is something that, you know, I, I guess what I say is we live in the, mon- we live in the monetary dark ages. But I guess, does that framework something that resonates with you? And, you know, maybe how, how do you kind of like view this kind of change affecting the world moving forward? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think like one basic truth that was true then and is true now is that absolutism and bureaucracy are self-defeating. And so systems that are really leaning on that, on this unity idea, which definitely the Spanish Empire was very much about kind of just keeping it all under control. They were the largest empire in the world. They had a huge shot in the arm from the silver of Peru and their, you know, their colonial conquests. But at the same time, they were they became more and more bureaucratic. They really were very controlling over their own economy. Taxes were high. They had all kinds of rules for their own merchants. They weren't allowed to trade with the English and the Dutch. And so that made them way less competitive. They had a huge army, which was, you know, just hemorrhaging the money they had literal inbreeding in in the in the in the royal family in order to kind of like according to the system everything went with inheritance and so the one way to increase your empire to grow geographically your empire would be to marry to strategically marry people with each other and so oftentimes they would marry cousins and things like that and so that's why they talk about the Habsburg chin you know, some of these, uh, in this, I believe it's in the 1600s, the, the, you know, literal disfiguration of the kings became so apparent, you can totally see it in, in the portraits. Some of them died extremely young. And, and so I'm just trying to like illustrate like this, you know, leaning on bureaucracy, leaning on absolutism is, especially if there's an alternative, then all that monetary and economic energy just drains away from you. Like whoever, like imagine you're, you know, you're an ambitious entrepreneur and you're just going to move away from Spain, right? You're and similar to today. I don't know where the oppression is going to happen against Bitcoin. I'm sure it will happen in, in a bunch of places. And I think it'll be just the same. It'll be self-defeating. The, the, the prosperous city-states or, or countries are going to be built wherever the oppression is not. So it'll be, Bitcoin is like water. It'll just kind of flow wherever the freedom is. And it'll drain away and, and, you know, make make the country that tries to stamp it out into an economic desert. So I think it's it's an incredibly powerful dynamic that, of course, you you know, it's kind of like Ayn Rand says, like you can, how does she say it again? You can you can ignore reality all you want, but you can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. And so it'll be like that. You know, certain countries are just going to suffer the consequences of not allowing for monetary competition on their territory. So I think this is, yeah, this is a massive, massive force because not only, you know, it's also, not only is it happening and it's impacting the global economy, but it's happening with money, money that you can transfer in an instant. Like you can literally send $50 billion from one side of the world to the other side of the world on a Sunday in the middle of the night and nobody can stop you. Like this is what Bitcoin enables people to do. And so I think these evolutions can happen fast, like in, in the 
15, 1600s, we're talking about, you know, the 30 years war and the 80 years war and like, you know, a really protracted period. I think things could happen faster at this time around. Yeah, and something that caught my eye there is you talk about Bitcoin being like water and, and just kind of flowing away from like the, the force that's, you know, projected at it. And in your piece, The Bitcoin Reformation, you talk about the Dutch and their ability to defend themselves by kind of being masters of the water. And, I, you know, I thought that was such a, a great metaphor for, you know, this ability to defend oneself and, their, and one's property through cryptography. And so I was hoping you could give our audience a bit of color on how the Dutch were able to manage these, these hostile invasions during this time period and, you know, what parallels you see, you know, to today and kind of this ability to defend oneself and, and kind of, you know, protect oneself in a defensive manner. Yeah, and, and I've been learning more about it. There's this book about the army of Flanders, because, of course, like logistically, you've got to imagine Spain is not very close to the Netherlands. You've got France, who's in between, and, and there's a bunch of mountains. And, and, and Spain was not a naval, you know, a naval empire, really. And also it would be too costly to move everyone by ship. And so they would march from Spain. They would march their soldiers up to the Netherlands and at any given time, I think they had about 70 to 100,000 soldiers in, in the lowlands, and which at the time was a huge force. And it really was a war of attrition. Like they really had to, um, like, because technology was changing everything. Like initially in the Middle Ages, you'd have the knights on the horses, and they would be a huge part of the, of the force of any army. And they would usually be a deciding factor. And then I believe it was the Swiss who invented this way of waging war with pikes. So the pikemen, they actually, I forget the date, but at some date they were able to defeat knights on horses, even though they were just standing, you know, without any, any animals. And so that changed the, the way warfare was done. Like they became much more of a numbers game. So you need to like send lots of people, but then in the lowlands, um, they, the, the Dutch were, you know, not, not stupid of course, and started, answering to these these challenges and these larger and larger forces that came onto their territory and rather than trying to build these thick walls like what they did in the middle ages like you see it in those those castles like big thick stone walls sieges could break through those and the cannons were getting better as well let me just take off my airpods because they're running out i'm gonna just put you on speaker uh, just a sec so hello can you still hear me Yes, sir. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so they would start building these earthworks. So you can still see in, in a bunch of places, you can see these like star shaped giant earthworks, even around little villages, they would build those. And, and so the way to conquer a village was to literally try to starve it. So you would, as if as the Spanish army, you would basically set up camp and you would cut off all the supply routes. And then you'd have to also set up a way to defend yourself. So you had to build a trench on the other side because they might be a force trying to liberate the town. And then you just wait it out. And so a lot of the... A lot of the army were actually not incredibly skilled people, but they were just kind of, you know, paid to sit and wait for months. So it was a, it was a very kind of slow. And, and that's why the, the taking towns that were on the edge of the ocean, that was extra hard. Like, for example, the siege of the siege of Austin, over 100,000 people died there. They, they besieged it for three years. So they were able to hold it for three years from the Spanish and every time they could just supply it with new supplies and new men, 
because they they had the Dutch had the ocean right, so they would use that as a supply route, and eventually there just weren't enough resources to keep doing that. And the whole the whole town was raised, by the way, like every building was just flattened out. If you go to Ostend today, and like there's not a, a house that's older than from from the beginning of 1600. And so, where was I? So so the warfare was had changed. Can you remind me the question again? Because I know I was going somewhere with this. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to relate the idea of kind of like the ability to defend oneself um, or to protect oneself in a defensive way, mm. and kind of relating the cryptographic assets of Bitcoin to kind of this like defensive warfare of the Dutch. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So so they were, so it's not only could, could they use the, the ocean for supply, but then they could also open up the, uh, open up the sluices and just flood the landscape. And so that would make make the whole area into a giant swamp. So it would be a lot harder for the Spanish to stay healthy even. And then they could also use the high tide to come in with flotillas and actually start <laughs> fighting those soldiers from those little boats. So you could kind of have these external forces that you, you could come basically on land by, by being smart about these these dams and removing them. So that was a big one. And if you look at Amsterdam today still, like, you know, Amsterdam is kind of, it's a little bit little bit similar to like Venice where it is kind of on an island. Like it's 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 surrounded by lots and lots of water. And that's why they chose it because it's it's so well defensible. And that's why they, they, they created the Bank of Amsterdam like right smack in the middle. It was almost like a, you know, it was almost like a statement to like to put it on the market square. It's like here, we're going to put all the gold of Europe here. Like all the free people of Europe are going to store their gold here. And it's kind of like this Texan thing of like, come and take it, and which they never managed to do. Like no force was ever able to to rob the Bank of Amsterdam. But I was going to say, so so how does that compare to today? I think there's a lot of unanswered questions there. Like it's it's very clear that cryptography is incredibly powerful and that it's an equalizing force. You know, you, no matter if you have an atom bomb or anything, you know, you're not going to break into an encrypted wallet unless, of course, you can access, you know, if there's only one person that knows the code to open it, then yes, then you can just do a $5 wrench attack and threaten someone and, you know, they give you the passwords. But multi-sig, multi-signature wallets are a way to to tackle that risk, right? If you have, for example, a, a three out of five wallet, you can theoretically store every key on a different continent so that whoever wants to get your wallet not only has to extract the information, where is where are the wallets, the keys stored, but then they have to physically go there and try to threaten or coerce whoever's there to to access three out of those five wallets. And then there's another layer, which is kind of coming now, I believe, with Taproot. I think Taproot makes it easier. And whoever is, is in the know, please correct me. And I'm talking about a delay mechanism. So you probably like... I remember at least when I went to like the supermarket in the past or some other stores, sometimes you'd see like a sign that said like, you know, our vault is secured and you can only access it with a delay of 45 minutes or something like that. And so like, it's it's a, a big part of the security industry that there's all these delay mechanisms because that's, you know, any, any thief, what's in their favor is the element of surprise and a thief is always going to want to you know, take the money quickly and then get out of there. Like that's almost like at the heart of any action movie. It's like they, they got to hurry up and are they going to make it in time? And so you can kind of preempt that by 
having these super interesting delay mechanism and in the world of bitcoin like it doesn't have to be 45 minutes it can be it can be days it can be months it can be years even that transactions are delayed or that transactions are kind of like temporary where they can still be kicked off to a safe address by some neutral third party so it's like so so that to me is just so promising you know i think that's just so so promising and it means that people in various geographies can work together and uh, we can basically have this kind of you know how like back in the day you had mercantile law right there was there was all there were all kinds of judicial agreements and systems that were working in a decentralized way and were just based on economic incentives and 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 because there wasn't a central court on the ocean so they would just kind of do things in 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 in, according to common law like according to certain habits and cultural practices and so similarly we can do that in bitcoin but additionally there's a lot less trust needed because you can program in the smart contracts a lot of things that you know preempt dealing with someone who's you know a chink a chink in the cable or somebody who's who's not trustworthy in the chain of events so i think it was on monday we were doing a gmbtc space which we do every weekday morning from i believe it's 9 a.m eastern usually for an hour and a half but in that space we were talking about you know would we need bitcoin if there was honest banks and my take was that coin would still get adopted even if we had like honest and and transparent central banks and the reason is is that central planners controlling the monetary policy is just not as effective as as bitcoin which is a completely transparent auditable and verifiable monetary policy that is not in the hands of humans tour you wrote a great article kind of diving into you know what a market would look like and what business cycles would look like even with you know kind of these honest banks do you want to jump into that article and kind of tease out what you were thinking there yeah, this is a while ago. I think it's like 2009 through 11. I was, I was, I was back then. I was translating Jesus Huerta de Soto's book called "Money, Bank Credit, and Economic Cycles." This is like giant tomes, like 500 pages, and it it dives into the uh, the practice of fractional reserve banking and full reserve banking from different angles, from like historical, judicial, uh, economic, and so it just kind of, you know, spiked my interest in the topic. So at the time, I yeah, I wrote I wrote some some articles about that. Yeah, so I I think that in a way we're we're talking about either fraud or doing honest business. We're also talking about time preference, like if you have a high time preference and you prefer to get your needs met right now, you're probably going to lean towards fractional reserve banking. If you have a low time preference you're probably going to lean towards full reserve banking and then you can also look into history and say like okay well you know when did things go really wrong and, and what were the types of banking that were used what are some famous court cases that have happened throughout history there is a, an example by the way of a banker i believe it was in venice who was beheaded because he had used the funds of his depositor so because he was supposed to be a full reserve banker and he had gone fractional and they they lopped off his head (laughs) so it's definitely when people say like oh free banking and there's all these examples and blah 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 it's like well yeah i mean there's examples of societies where there's a lot of stealing happening and it doesn't mean that we have to codify stealing and, and make it you know into a legal thing but but it's of course true that if you have a society where fractional reserve banking is allowed 
and it's very permissive towards that, then you you will have lower interest rate probably, right? Because there's more, there's for a while at least, there is more capital available to be lent out. But then eventually a crisis comes and everybody's like, oh, but I, you know, the emperor has no clothes. I thought, you know, my money was safe in Binance and all of a sudden it's not. I thought my money was safe among Gox and all of a sudden it's not. Um and so then you get this big swing towards a run to safety. Everybody withdraws their money from the bank. Nobody trusts each other. And then you have very, very high interest rates, higher than they would have been if we just had full reserve banking and people, the money is actually there and there is no overlapping claims on the same money. Because that's basically what happens with fractional reserve banking. It's, you know, there's, there's a bank. It has 10,000 Bitcoin and deposits. And it starts lending out, you know, 3,000 of those Bitcoin. And, and so then you get a situation where the depositors think they have 10,000 Bitcoin. And whoever borrowed those Bitcoin actually have 3,000 Bitcoins in their hands. So they also believe they have 3,000 Bitcoin. So then you have 13,000 Bitcoins worth of claims backed by only 10,000 real Bitcoin. And then, of course, you can imagine that the people who borrowed the 3,000 Bitcoin can turn around and deposit that again, those Bitcoin in some other bank. And then, you know, so, so that's how you get credit expansion. That's how people say that reserve banking is, is inflationary and it leads to the, the, these bubbles that then collapse. So that's, that's where the business cycle comes from, is that it's not just like the weather where like, oh, there's a bad storm and you just got to, you know, hunker down and it'll be okay. And then you come, it's not like this natural phenomenon. It's really something that is rooted, these, these violent business cycles, they are rooted in the simple practice of deception, right? You're deceiving people. And so they're, they, they are happy to be deceived because they don't know, they don't realize it. And then all of a sudden people are like, damn, we're being deceived. Everybody tries to run to the exit. Not everybody makes it. The theater burns down, and so then you have a crash. So, yeah, I don't know how coherent I am, but those are some thoughts about, you know, versus full reserve banking. Will there be credit in a Bitcoin system? Oh, I, I believe so. I think I actually, I probably disagree with Saifedean on that. I think he, you know, there seems to be in the, in the like, Arabic Islamic world, this kind of you know, belief that we don't need credit or that credit is inherently bad or something like that. I'm not very well read about that at all. And, uh, and, and I, I think that his thoughts around that are, you know, relate to, to that background. But yeah, I do believe there's going to be credit in a, in a Bitcoin world. Like basically what you're doing is just like you, when you have a car and it's, it's, you know, standing in your garage and you're, you're not using it very much, you can rent it out. Or if you have a cottage on your property, you can put it on Airbnb. Like you're just renting out your property. If, if you have some money that you're not using, you can rent it out. Like that is, that's what lending is. You rent it out. People can use it for a certain period of time and then they um, pay you back with interest. So they pay you for your low time preference. They pay you. And what they get in return is they don't have to save up for whatever, two or five or 10 years to get that same sum no they can start their business today like that is that is what they get in return so in my opinion that's just you know a very clear win-win situation and of course you could argue like oh but bitcoin is deflationary the value keeps going up and so if i borrow in bitcoin 
then that's super risky because if I borrow, I don't know, 10 Bitcoin, it's 200000 what's what, $300,000 today. Maybe it's going to be a million dollars next year when I have to pay it back. And so that, of course, means that people who, um, who have a Bitcoin-based business, for example, if you need Bitcoin as inventory, like you are, I don't know, like you're... You're someone who creates a service where people can buy Bitcoin from you in person. So you, you go and see them and you explain the wallet to them and, you, you know, and then they hand you the cash. So you can be like, all right, that's, that's going to be my business. And so then you borrow the 10 Bitcoin, but you always kind of keep it. It's your inventory. And whenever you get cash from having sold Bitcoin, you just turn around and buy new Bitcoin. So, you know, so those kind of very conservative businesses would get would get uh, you know the the ben- they they would be more likely to borrow in bitcoin but then there's other ways that lending would happen historically because of course historically money would deflate as well like farmers in the middle ages who would borrow oftentimes they had a contract where they they had a, a a debt let's say you know 10 guilders or something like that or 50 guilders because they they needed to repair their house or they wanted to expand or something like that. And so the contract would say that the interest would not be paid in gold, but it would be paid in, I think it was a percentage of their yield. So they would, you know, they'd be a corn farmer or something like that, or probably wheat if it's uh, the lowlands. So then, you know, if they get 100 bushels a year, whatever it is, then they would pay three bushels a year in interest. And that was just written like that in the contract. And so that they only at the end of the term is only when they had to pay back the initial the initial amount of gold. So you can imagine contracts like that that are just that just inherently recognize that Bitcoin can be volatile to the upside. And so that whoever lends it out might be willing to receive interest payments in, in different forms than, than than in hard Bitcoin. Yeah, th- thanks for that, Tura. That's really interesting. Your offering of that historical context. And before we wrap up here, I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit on proof of stake. Um, I know you wrote a piece titled Critique of Buterin's A Proof of Stake Design Philosophy. And now that Ethereum has gone to proof of stake and you know, there's all this ESG FUD ramping up from the likes of Greenpeace with their Skull of Satoshi, which is a very cool look. I'll say that much. I have my profile picture. But yeah, I just kind of wanted to get, get your take on that. Has, you know, has your thinking shifted on, on that at all lately? And if so, how? But I guess just for people in the audience, like what is it about proof of stake that you think leads it to being, you know, inherently an insecure method of consensus? Yeah, I think I've described it. I've described proof of stake as a, a political system whereby the voters get paid by the non-voters and, and political. It's political because there is no work that's being done, right? It's just about, oh, I have, you know, certain certain claims to property and that entitles me to a vote, okay? But I could also borrow the property and then use that to vote. And so, and as soon as my cartel has like a majority of votes, then we can vote to organize the system in our favor. So for example, right now, people are telling themselves like, oh, we're going to get 4% a year yield from staking. But like, you know, if, if I, I did this little, little math thing today, or I think it was yesterday or something, because Joe Lubin had said like, oh, I think everyone is going to stake their ether. I think we're going to go to like, you know, eventually close to 100% of 
ether that's being staked. <laughs> if you really think about that, like let's assume 90% of the ETH is staked. So that means that their 4% yield that they're dreaming of is going to be extracted from the remaining 10% of ETH that is not staked. And that's the only ETH that can be used in commerce, for payments, for anything. And, and of course, they're saying like, oh, ETH is, is ultrasound money. We're not going to print more of it. It's as good as Bitcoin, like that kind of thing. And so, okay, let's assume they're not going to make more ETH. So that means that 4% of the entire supply has to be extracted from that 10% that is circulating. And so in, in year one, somehow you got to produce, you know, 4% fees that then go to the stakers. So then they have 94% and there's only 6% remaining. And in year two, you know, you, you have to extract another 4% somehow. And then they have 98 and there's only 2%. So it's, it's just impossible, right? These are just impossible situations. So either the yield has to go down massively, which, you know, stakers are unlikely to do, you know, they, they have the power, right? So they are going to vote for whatever benefits them. And so if they feel unhappy with how much economic value that they're extracting, they're just going to create inflation, they're going to somehow make it inflationary. It's just so predictable. It's, it's just so predictable how this system is going to be abused. And uh, it's sad to me, because ultimately, Satoshi's innovation satoshi's you know breakthrough was using proof of work because proof of stake systems had been hypothesized and tried going back in the 90s so the you know proof of stake is literally going backwards you're you're just doing fiat 2.0 it's 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 very sad that a lot of people still can't see that fully agree on that proof of work solved so many problems including you know a decentralized clock it, it really did it it really did a the monetary policy to a way that it was never possible with previous thought you know systems and even with your your most popular proof of stake system today many of them have required like being reset and 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 being systematized and require like out of band post validation and and, and and human kind of operation, which is just the complete opposite of what proof of work established. Right. And yeah, and also there's this whole fantasy that is like, you know, Ethereans get so excited about it. It's like all this ETH is gonna get locked up, right? It's gonna all this staked ETH is locked up and you can't move it, so you can't sell it. And isn't that great because it's gonna push the value up. It's like yeah, well, that's what people are saying in the real estate market as well. Like all these mortgages, like all these people are locked into their 30 year mortgage. And like, you know, it's great. It means that the price can't go lower. Like that's the kind of the simplified argument. It's like, okay, until, of course, the value of the houses drops down low enough that people start panicking and they're like, screw this. I want out no matter what. And and then, you know, you have this Shanghai fork that is going to allow people to exit exit the the you know the 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 system i think that's going to that's going to be another area where the plebeians are going to find that they're they're being screwed over like people who are late because it, it's of course a system where you have got to wait in line and whoever staked their money the latest which is retail i think i think they're going to get the short end of the stick and the the early adopters are going to not only get out of their staked ether, they're just going to exit ETH. They're just going to sell out once they see that things are going really wrong, that like the, the you know, prosecutors are going after, and I'm not encouraging this necessarily, prosecutors going after Ethereum core devs, Ethereum foundation, all that stuff. I'm just saying that 
this system is so fragile. They got to keep, they got to keep it. They kind of keep changing it. Cause it's like, it's like this airplane that's mid air and they just replaced the entire engine from proof of work to proof of stake. And it's leaking. And all of a sudden, whoever is an engineer on that plane, they can be sued. And then maybe they can go to jail or something like that. It's like, you know, okay. Well, so what happens when everybody stops working on the plane? That's very different from Bitcoin where if all the core devs were to stop working on it from this very day, nothing much would change because like Bitcoin is perfectly stable. Like, of course, there's always some things that can be tweaked and improved and, and, but Bitcoin is fine to be ossified. I'm pretty, pretty sure of that today. So anyway, that's just, you know, another consequence of the move fast and break things attitude that they've had for the last, you know, six, seven years. Yeah, I just pinned a tweet at the top from, I believe he's, he says he's a team lead at Ethereum, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. But his, his whole kind of critique of the development process is that Ethereum is kind of just piling on complexity and trying to, you know, keep a pace with everything that's falling off the plane, as you say. And yeah, I think it really just highlights like this kind of red queen problem where Ethereum is trying to, is having to run faster and faster just to stay in the same place. And, and there certainly is a limit to that limit to the, you know, the ability to make those changes in a way that they're functional for a time. And yeah, I think, you know, we, we'll see what happens with this Shanghai upgrade and, you know, people unstaking their ETH and where that goes, but it's going to be a fascinating experiment nonetheless. Yeah, there's a word for it. It's technical debt, right? It's what happens when you, you don't engineer a solid foundation for your, your edifice. And instead, it's all it's all sand and shaky. And then you just, you know, you just built this Jenga tower that's about to go in a hurricane. Like, that's just not going to go well. So, Tour, you're going to be speaking at the Bitcoin conference. You've actually been speaking at a lot of our events. In 2022, you interviewed Jordan Peterson, and then you gave a keynote at Bitcoin Amsterdam. What are you excited about right now in Bitcoin and what can people potentially expect from you at the conference? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure yet. I'm still, I'm kind of still talking to you guys about what what I'm going to be doing. So I always want to just, yeah, make sure people get some value. So I'm not sure about that yet. What am I excited about? I mean, the bull market, like how could you not? Like, you know, QE is back. Money printing is back. People are finding a completely new reason to adopt Bitcoin. And it's because they're scared that their money is not actually in the bank. They're scared of inflation. All the things that, you know, as Bitcoiners have been afraid of for a long time, chickens are coming to roost. And so I'm excited that we've had 14 years to build this solid foundation. And I think Bitcoin is ready to onboard a lot, a lot more people. And I think it's it's going to start happening. The next two, three years are going to be, I think, incredible. I think so, I think some of these, because we've just had the longest bear market in Bitcoin's history. And, and uh, you know, the whole, the whole crypto ecosystem, like that's evaporating. So it's becoming a lot more clear who the leaders are in, in, the, in the cryptocurrency space. So a lot of the confusion is going to be washed away. We're going to have governments who really try to ban it. And then we'll see them kind of fall on their face. Bitcoin is digital gold. Bitcoin is, you know, the Internet of money. And I think Bitcoin is going mainstream the next two, three years. Wow. I mean... I thought I was bullish at my my 2030 call, but the next two, three years going mainstream, we'll see. 
I mean, the bit signal is up per Balaji and, you know, people have been saying, right, what we're witnessing right now is what Bitcoin was made for. So, you know, personally, I think that better tech doesn't take that long once uh, once its time has come. So whether it's two or three years or, you know, whether it's a decade, you know, I really don't think that <laughs> Bitcoin's going to take that long. To be clear, when I say it's going mainstream, I don't mean it's going to 80% or 90% adoption. I mean, we're going to get past the hump of we've been hovering around like a 10% for a long time now. And a lot of people have been like just dipping their toe into it. Like, you know, if you have like $100 in Bitcoin and you live in the United States, I don't know, like, can you call yourself like a, a Bitcoin adopter? Like that's, I don't know, that's a bit of a stretch. But I think that we're going to see a significant percent of the population have very significant exposure to Bitcoin over the next few years. Like that, that's what I mean. It's like, you know, to go from like, 1993 internet where like some people are like oh yeah we're chatting and it's kind of this nerdy underground thing to like boom like i buy my books on amazon i search for everything i need on google you know i i stream my movies on netflix like that kind of thing that that's what i mean with the with mainstream adoption sure i had one last question for you that i really wanted to unpack and perhaps it's a little bit speculative but this kind of goes back to the conversation about the reformation period and i saw just kind of this interesting dynamic where kind of the, the end of the Reformation was marked by the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, and that ended the Thirty Years' War. And ultimately, that was like kind of the first formal international recognition of the nation state being autonomous from the religious authority. And I, I wanted to get your, your take on that as it relates to Bitcoin. Like, to my view, and perhaps CK's as well, I know he's a big fan of the sovereign individual. Is there a similarity between the Peace of Westphalia and kind of you know, the individual relationship to the state, you know, kind of the individual being autonomous with regard to the state as like, and you know, is that kind of like what Bitcoin represents, where it's kind of recognizing that that sovereignty of the individual as we recognize the sovereignty of the nation state in 1648? Like, I'd be really curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I really think so. You know, it's it's kind of like, it was really like Spain admitting defeat. It's like, you know, it's a kind of like, all right, you guys, uh, we're not going to press this any longer. It's been decades and decades. And and also there was there's New York, right? New York City was founded by founded by Flemings, founded by Dutch people, merchants. It was it was originally a trading hub. It wasn't like a, you know, a religious colony or anything like that. It was just meant to be a trading hub, Manhattan Island. And and that was the first place where in the in the state constitution freedom of religion was uh, was embedded and so that to me is another one of those big wins it's like yeah that that's what we're talking about it's it's about civil liberties and so free monetary freedom you know choosing how you store your wealth choosing how to spend your wealth without being taxed on every transaction i think that's going to be one of those big wins and of course we'll see it being ratified by small you know very small nations by little like city states that's going to happen soon. But then, of course, you know, when we're talking about the big nation states like that, yeah, there's going to be a time when some of these big nation states are going to kind of throw their hat in the ring and say, like, all right, guys, we fought long and hard, but it's time to move on and you guys can have your Bitcoin. Or you can keep your Bitcoin. Maybe it's a better way to put it. Mm. I hope it's not that much of a fight, honestly, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I definitely think that Bitcoiners should be biased towards survivability, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what this what this next decade brings us. Yeah, I, th I think the better prepared we are, the less intense the fighting has to be because, 
you know, the more, the more, the, the less, you know, f- surface area there is to actually have a fight, the less of a fight there is going to be. So that's why education is so important to teach people about, you know, being, being, being in charge of their own Bitcoin and, and how to, how to be sovereign in this digital world. All right. Well, with that tour, I really appreciate you for coming on. Thanks again uh, to everyone listening. This conversation has been recorded. We'll be posting it on the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed, as well as it's recorded here on Twitter. And, you know, talking about education and talking to Tour de Meester, the Bitcoin conference, the best place to bring your newbie friends to show them about Bitcoin, have them experience the Bitcoin ecosystem, the Bitcoin community, everything that is happening within Bitcoin and the energy here. So come see Tour Speak, come meet me and, and everyone else that is part of the Bitcoin Coalition as we come together Miami, May 18th through the 20th. And with that, you guys can save 10% with promo code COSMIC, and I'll wrap it up. Thanks again, Tour. Thanks again, Spencer. Thanks, Producer Chris. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing all you in person again. I, I really enjoy the conferences you guys put on. I think it's it's always like really well organized and the, the energy is always great. And, and that's why I love, I love showing up. Means a lot. Love the endorsement tour and uh, yeah, excited to see you again as well. And excited for to see you on stage. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate right, it. Y'all. Have a good rest of your evening. Peace. Peace out. Peace out. My fellow plebs, Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head-on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine.